0: Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Revelation, from chapters 18 and 21. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen fallen is Babylon the Great. She has become a dwelling for demons, and a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand far off, terrified at her torment. They will weep and mourn and cry out, woe, woe to you, great city dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet and glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. In one hour, such great wealth has been brought to ruin. Every sea captain and all who travel by ship, the sailors and all who earn their living from the sea will stand far off. When they see the smoke of her burning, they will exclaim, Was there ever a city like this great city? Chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Please join me in welcoming the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby.
1: I think I might quit while I'm ahead. (laughs) Let's pray. Lord Jesus, your word is trustworthy. The Bible is the true witness to you, to your will, to the way we live, to what we believe, to where we're going, to where we've come from, to who we are, to what we are, to what we should be, and to how we can be that. There is nothing that we need in terms of truth that we don't find in your scriptures. So, by your Spirit, enable us to open them rightly and wisely. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm amazed uh, to have the privilege of being here again. Normally, I'm never asked back, (laughs) but, you know, there you go. It shows your patience, and particular thanks to David and Philippa. It's such a treat to to be back with with Christchurch, and to see the changes, and to hear of the new plants and the growth, and it's just amazing what God is doing across our land. Uh, Every time I get interviewed on the media, they start off with this great thing about The decline of the church, well, we've got a long way to go, but things are changing. The Lord is on the move in a way that we have not seen uh, in probably since the 19th century. And there is a massive change in the hearts of people, and particularly in the hearts of the millennials, of the younger generation, who are finding that what they've inherited from our generation, my generation, the baby boomers, your generation, I'm afraid. Uh, I'm not going to stand here by myself and be the only one taking responsibility for that. Share the blame. That what we've inherited is not good enough. That uh, uh, a society that tolerates injustice and unfairness, even for those outside the church, they say there's something wrong and it's got to change. All around the world, we're seeing that. And uh, where the church gets with that, the church grows. And where the church pretends everything's all right or gets or colludes with the establishment, the church is rightly left out of the stream. And it's a challenge. But to come here and see those wonderful baptisms, and I'll refer to another one just before I uh, stop. And um, uh, because we got one more to come. Uh, And uh, to see those is just fantastic. It is a picture, a symbol of the change that is in those four people's hearts and in lives and the way that God is moving with them. And it is a symbol of the reality of the church that God is creating. So we give thanks for that. I'm just thrilled to be there. And I want to talk about the two cities this morning. And you heard those readings earlier. If you've got a Bible accessible uh, on your phone or with you in some other way, do look up Revelation 18 for a starter. Revelation 18, verses 1 to 3 and 15 to 18. I could have read the whole chapter, and I'm going to refer to the whole chapter, but it would have made the readings rather long. What I want to start with is that uh, as Christians, and the church throughout history has done this, we are invariably in danger of being deceived. And how we respond to that danger of being deceived is really, really important. We're deceived too often by fear. Pope John Paul II, Pope Benedict, Pope Francis. One of the most frequent things they say is, do not fear. The Bible says constantly, do not fear. We are deceived by fear, and when we are frightened, we do the wrong thing. We're also deceived by appearance and power. I was... um, nominated as Archbishop in 2013, uh, 2012, 2012, in November, November the 9th, 2012. uh, It was announced that I was to be the next Archbishop of Canterbury. I was then Bishop of Durham. I was working up in Bishop Auckland in the northeast of England. And um, uh, my uh, PA said to me a couple of days later, she said, oh, you've got a lot of new best friends, haven't you? because of the letters coming in pointing out that, you know, from people saying, well, of course, we've always been friends. And she'd say, is this someone you know? I'd say, not consciously. (laughs) But suddenly people think, okay, you're in a position, uh, they think falsely you're in a position of power in this job, and therefore, um, suddenly they're your best friends. We are deceived by power. If, uh, as a parish priest, as a vicar, If I uh, said many of the things I say now, I did say many of the things I say now, and nobody paid much attention. When I'm archbishop, it's all over the place. We are tricked by appearance and power. And when we see people who appear successful, we think somehow God's got to be on their side. It's an incredibly dangerous form of deception, because the flip side is when we see people who are not famous and well-known and appear to be successful, we... Think that God is somehow not on their side. One of my greatest heroes, a man called James Hudson Taylor, uh, went to China in the 1840s as a missionary, lived, uh, set up China Inland Mission, um, lived in never asked for money in his life. He had a thousand missionaries working across China and never once asked for money. And God provided that money. He lived, his whole mission lived on that basis and they absolutely extraordinary story he was there he died shortly after the boxer rebellions uh, about 50 or 60 years later and uh, when he died i think the figure was around about 10,000 chinese had come to christ it was You could look at that. Most people in England had never heard of him. Christians had. Uh, The people who knew about China had, but most others. But nobody thought he was a great success. Today, China has the thick end of 65, 70 million Protestant Christians, 20, 30 million Catholic Christians. Of the Protestant Christians, it's one of the biggest Christian nations on Earth. Uh, Of the Protestant Christians, Almost all of them trace their spiritual heritage to someone led to Christ through Hudson Taylor's ministry and was he a failure I don't think so. Are we going to find in heaven that God says we didn't do very well I don't think so. I think he is someone close to the, to the throne because what you see in this world deceive us where also deceived By failure, we see people who come crashing down, even church leaders, and we think, and we judge them, and we get rid of them. We chuck them out of our minds, chuck them out of our churches, and we forget that the deception there is that we are all sinners saved by grace, that there's not one of us here who can say, I've never sinned. There's not one of us here who deserves to know Jesus Christ. There's not one of us here who merits the position we hold. And so all of us come in the words of the old hymn to Jesus saying, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. And deception is shown in false hope and false fear. And the book of Revelation is one of those bits that people lock onto in false hope and false fear. And so before I go into the details of the book, uh, of the readings we had, I just want to pick up a quick thing about the book of Revelation. Revelation is not prophecy about the last X years of human history. Uh, it is an unveiling. Its other name in, the, in Christian history is apocalypse. Apocalyptic unveils what's happening behind the scene. It pulls the curtains back and you can see what's really going on. And so it applies to every generation. If Revelation was only about a particular generation then let's not read it unless we're absolutely certain we're that generation because for the rest of human history it was not necessary to have it in the Bible but if it's about what is behind the scenes what is really happening the spiritual truths of the cosmos then it is immensely important I read uh, uh, recently a history of the interpretation of the Book of Revelation, how people had interpreted it through the centuries, right back uh, to 1700 years, 1800 years. And in every generation, there were people who said, this is about this generation, we are the last generation, the Antichrist is so-and-so, the good people are so-and-so almost invariably including the person who was interpreting it. <laughs> and by a strange coincidence, the Antichrist was invariably their, their worst enemies. And you just, the more you read about it, you thought, this is bonkers. And on the whole, it is. And there have been through the centuries a few people who have really thought their way into it. One of them was the uh, greatest uh, with Aquinas, uh, the greatest of the medieval theologians, St. Augustine. Uh, Augustine of Hippo living in North Africa at the time the Roman Empire was collapsing. And uh, Augustine was sort of uh, fifth, sixth century, and uh, absolutely grew up as a philosopher, was converted, wrote his confessions, about how he's converted, how he came to Christ. And he was one of the greatest thinkers of Christian history, one of the most formative thinkers of Christian history. And Augustine wrote a book, a very long book, called City of God, because as the Roman Empire collapsed, people were deceived into thinking that meant that God's church had collapsed. Okay? Deception leads to fear. God's been beaten. We've lost. This is the end. And in his book, City of God, uh, Augustine particularly focuses on Revelation 18, Revelation 21 in one chapter, uh, chapter 20. And he talks about the fact that we must not be deceived into false hope or false fear. Uh, He actually died with his city besieged by the invading barbarian hordes. Not as a result of the siege, but just because he was very old and he was at the end of his life. But despite that, he wrote this book, City of God. And so we've got two cities. We may be living in the last days. One of the good things that Jesus says to us is nobody knows when he's going to return. He is going to return. He will return. There will be a day when God wraps the whole lot up and we're all Facing judgment that's quite a serious thought uh, but we don't know when it is Jesus said he didn't know when it is so when people tell you that this is when it is they are actually saying they know better than Jesus <laughs> on the whole I tend to take that with a pinch of salt <laughs> if nobody knows when it's going to happen so what do we do as we live in this world with its ups and downs and its fears and its hopes and its deceptions and, its, and the truth that we find in Jesus. How do we deal with evil and live in hope? And remember, in the Bible, hope doesn't mean hope because I bought a lottery ticket that I might win 20 million quid next Saturday. By the way, I never have, but there we are. I mean, I've never bought a lottery ticket. I certainly haven't won the 20 million quid because, on the whole, as I understand the system you do have to buy a lottery ticket. (laughs) Um, But hope doesn't mean that sort of hope. I hope that someone takes me out to dinner tomorrow evening, whatever it happens to be. Uh, Hope means a certain expectation of something that is coming in the future. So when the Bible talks about hope, it's not talking about hope in the way we do. It means this is going to happen, and it's going to happen in the future. So I want to pick up three things. First, recognize evil. This is Revelation 18. Those two bits, it's the whole of Revelation 18. Recognizing evil is a key to the whole Bible. If we don't recognize that evil exists all around us as a force in the world, as a force within human beings by human choice, And as a spiritual force, which we often refer to as the devil or Satan, if we don't recognize the existence of evil, we will be deceived. And I know that sounds obvious. You're all thinking, oh, for goodness sake, you don't have to. Do we really need the Archbishop of Canterbury here to tell us that kind of rubbish? We all know that. No, you don't. You know it academically, like me but we need to recognize the reality of its force. We have uh, a course within the Church of England for people um, who are, uh, we think, will have wide responsibilities in the church in the future, people in their 30s and 40s, and uh, it's called, uh, it's got some pompous name which I've now immediately forgotten. (laughs) Uh, I probably invented it. but colloquially it's known as the learning community because it's a community and it learns. So it's quite good to call it that. Um, and uh, one of the things, they, they, there's about 40 or 50 of them in each year, chosen from across the country, each by their own bishops, a couple from each diocese, or each of our 41 dioceses, And they um, come together for about 12 to 15 days a year. And they have fantastic teaching. They have times of reflection and prayer. They come from all different shades of opinion and bits of the church. And they discover that they all belong to Jesus and they love one another. It's actually quite exciting, that bit. Because normally they've only been in their little bubble of bit of the church. And they're very excited when they find the other bubbles are actually Christians as well. (laughs) And um, I do... Just to put this in context, because it doesn't sound like a lot, I do three days with each cohort, with each year. As they go through their three-year course, I do three days with them during those three, de- three years. Put it in context, once you put into my diary everything I've got to do by law, I'm left with 80... Or, and holidays, to be fair. I'm left with 81 days a year. Out of those 81 days, last year, we, we had 4,300 invitations to do things, for those 81 days, and obviously we turned down about 4,200 of them, uh, or a bit more. And um, so three days is really a lot of time. And the thing I do with three, those three days is we take them to some of the worst places we can possibly imagine in terms of the presence of human evil. So, for instance, the first cohort we took to Birkenau Auschwitz. Uh, we'll go to Srebrenica next year. Uh, and we take them there, so that, and they spend three days contemplating the reality of evil and reflecting on the power of God and the fact that the cross, a naked human being hanging on a cross, unnoticed by almost everyone, 2,000 years ago, outside Jerusalem, is the definitive answer in the entire cosmos to what they see in front of them when they go to these places of evil. Isn't that extraordinary? That's God. And so when we went to Auschwitz, it was in January. It was minus 16. The snow was about 18 inches deep. It was, for, by their standards, a warm winter. And we, on the third day, we did what they call Stations of the Cross. Second day, Stations of the Cross. Which means in the afternoon, when it was a bit warmer, up to about minus 14, we went through 14 points around Birkenau, the extermination camp, And in each of them, we meditated on one part of Jesus's final journey to his death, from his trial to being put in the tomb. And we'd stand in the snow for, at each point, there'd be a short reflection by a Roman Catholic priest who was leading the reflections. And we'd stand in the snow in silence for five, ten minutes, thinking about what he'd said, praying. And we got to one place. And... There was a little dip in the snow. And he said, those are the ash pits. In those pits are the ashes of a million people. I am not going to speak further. I want you only to listen to the cries from the earth. And we did. And the people who were on that said... When they came back, they said that was one of the most transforming moments of their lives because they had to put that together with Jesus on the cross and realized Jesus on the cross and the empty tomb were more powerful than that. So, confront evil. Revelation 18 is the judgment on evil. It's obvious in places like Auschwitz and Birkenau, but actually Revelation 18 talks about it in a place it calls Babylon, which could be anywhere at any time. Uh, It doesn't condemn the city of London or trade, but it condemns what happens and motivation. And If you look at it, that chapter works in a circle. The circle goes like this. Verses 1 to 3, judgment is decreed. Verses 4 to 8... In response to God and hope, the people of God are to separate themselves from human evil. They're to turn away from what's wrong. Don't take part in evil deeds, they say. In verses 9 to 19, the people who are involved in the evil, but in response not to God but to fear and selfishness, They separate themselves from Babylon as they see see her falling. They try and save themselves, not by turning to God, but just by getting away. They stand afar off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. And in verse 20, the separated people of God rejoice at God's judgment on evil. And verses 21 to 4, remember, verses 1 to 3 began with judgment decreed. Verses 21 to 24 end with judgment decreed. It's a circle. The whole thing is written as a circle. Who and where is Babylon? Well, it's anywhere that puts materialism and gain and pleasure first, that despises the poor and the weak, and deceives human beings into thinking they have it all and makes power and wealth into gods. One of the key words that was brought out very well in that very well-read reading. I can't see where... Who was reading? Who was reading? You're you're there. You read beautifully. Thank you. It's really good. You brought out the word adultery. Adultery throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New is a key word. It means unfaithfulness to God and so at the heart of deception is unfaithfulness to God Babylon is anywhere where we are unfaithful to God and all the things it talks about adultery wealth uh, trade trading uh, trading in human beings it says in one part of it All the power, all these things are tempting and deceiving, and we fall for them. Evil is charming, organized, visionary, and powerful. Don't think evil looks evil. Evil looks rather nice. That's why it's so difficult. So first thing, be aware of evil. Be aware of the temptation. At the heart of the temptation is we instrumentalize people. We make wealth and power of God. See it in ourselves and turn away from it. I'll come back to that. Second one, trust God. Recognize evil, trust God. Revelation 21, there's another city, except it's a new city coming down from heaven. Uh, Actually, can we just note, because I'm a city person, I love cities. Uh, all this stuff about, you know, it's always better in the countryside, and we always move out into the countryside. God likes cities. Right through the Bible. Yes. Oh, used to happen to me. I was, I was a country vicar for seven years. Oh, I could see cows from my window. <laughs> Can you imagine the suffering? <laughs> I like concrete. God likes cities. Of course, He made the countryside, and I respect Him for it. <laughs> Actually, I love bits of the countryside, I just didn't. And um, cities are safety throughout the Bible. It's where you go to be safe and secure and together. God is present in the city. There is no evil in this new city. Healing is present. There are no tears. Everything is new. And by the way, there are no churches because God's there, so you don't need one. It's linked to the universal plan of God. It has walls and gates. It's not universal. It's linked to the universal plan of God, but that universal plan includes judgment in which some people are in and some people are out. It's why the New Jerusalem has walls and gates. It's beautiful. It's not predatory like Babylon. It's built by God. We have no hand in its creation. We can't make it, but we have every responsibility to point to its reality. I have three priorities in my ministry. I can count up to three. After that, it gets difficult. One, two, three lots. And... um, (laughs) One is the renewal of prayer and religious communities, people who pray together, live under a rule, live together. Two is reconciliation, because that's what Jesus did for us. And three is evangelism and witness. I can hold those in my mind without too much trouble. And uh, we, our responsibility as evangelists, as people who witness to Jesus, is to say, this is what's coming, this is who Jesus is, this is how he dealt with evil, so be able to explain why we're Christians in less than a minute without once using religious jargon. Every one of you should be able to do that. So that tomorrow when they say, what did you do yesterday? You say, I went to church, heard a very boring sermon, but, and they say, why did you go to church? And you say, because I'm a Christian and I don't know all the answers, but I do know that Jesus Christ has changed everything in my life. And made it make sense and I find joy and forgiveness and hope. Less than a minute. So is it only for the future? No. One of the great errors in the book of Revelation, the interpretation of the book of Revelation, is that we uh, muddle up the now and the not yet. One of the great themes of the New Testament is the now and the not yet. We Either people say it's all now and we retreat into uh, into a holy huddle and try and build the city of God, which, as I said, is created by God, not by us. It's pointed to by us. Or we say it's all not yet and we have no expectation that God will work now. The church is not the city. It's a sign of the city of God. We cannot exclude evil because we have no walls. There are people in this church who sin. In fact, everyone in this room now sins. And there are people who have really bad intentions. That is because we're human. But our job as the church is to be a place of healing, of holiness, and of hope. To demonstrate that future city that's coming in the way we live together and yet not overpromise that we can make it all happen now. I was in Norfolk last year. Uh, Last week, rather, uh, in a diocesan visit, three days. And I just saw uh, 22 visits in three days. All through the poorest parts of, particularly the southern part of the diocese, on the coast, I saw churches who are unknown, unfamous, loving, healing, caring, bringing people to Jesus. It was the most exciting thing. A village... Called Haysborough, where literally the cliffs are coming in so fast, that, uh, coming down so fast, that the village will disappear within 40 years. Who's holding it together? A wonderful vicar and the church around her. The church will disappear over the cliff within 30 years at its present rate of progress. It's been there 700 years. Imagine what that feels like. But who's giving them hope? It's the people of God. So we are to be resilient. Resilience comes from hope. We have a hope none can remove because the city of God is coming. So what what do we actually do about it day to day in the last four minutes? Don't worry, David. I'm watching my watch like a hawk. (laughs) Well, the historical era has been withdrawing. Early 1930s, as Hitler was rising in power in Germany, the church... The church doctrine in Germany was, don't get involved. Pray lots, but don't get involved in the world around us. They could have stopped him. Um, We are not to withdraw. We're not to say we're going to separate from evil. You can't do it. It's everywhere. And that's why it's important we don't say Babylon is London or New York or Rome or whatever it happens to be, because that that's ridiculous Babylon is an attitude of mind not a geographical place holiness is dynamic not passive it's not just not sinning it's acting in the love and power and mercy of God and that's what you're doing and I praise God for it I'm very challenged by this place now Tell you, over, uh, uh, David, over lunch why I think we're going to abolish most institutional churches. <laughs> Just for the record, because this may be on a tape or on a video, that was a joke. <laughs> we are to be involved in the world around us. Get stuck in, committed but not corrupted. Transformed by the spirit, not by the culture. And you can only do that if you're part of a praying community. When I was in the oil industry, I had very different attitudes to many things because the culture in which I lived gave me false approaches to the world. I learned the difference, not just in this job but as a clergyman, in places like a flea pit town in the Niger Delta called Nembe, a place of suffering and poverty uh, with an oil pumping station a quarter of a mile away uh, with everything it needed in terms of clean water and electricity. I learnt it in Liverpool as dean of Liverpool, working at the cathedral just on the edge of Toxteth. I learned it in Canterbury with the Isle of Thanet and the deprivation there. We are to be a church that always points to Jesus but recognises the spiritual warfare that exists, a worship that has love and hope at the center and looks for the coming of the city of God, a love that is healing and brings resilience in the face of success and failure, of triumph and disaster, not like that dreadful poem of Kipling's If, which is nonsense. We we are not resilient by stoic grit, but by living hope a mission that brings others face-to-face with the reality of the God who is faithful and leads them to turn from the deception of gods who fail. If we look at the city of London in 2008, all the idolatrous gods of wealth and power fell over when the banks ran into trouble. And only one God was left, and that was a human being on a cross outside Jerusalem, And it is our job as the church to say, he is faithful. Everything else will fail you, but he will never fail you. The city of London, this great city, this wonderful city, where I was born, where Caroline was born, is no worse than any other place and no better. It's full of people who are loved and who, by God, and whom we are all called to in love. Be part of it. Pray for it. Do not collude with it when it is wrong or think it has all the answers to everything. We're going to turn to another baptism in a moment. A baptism that symbolizes new life, participation in life, but certainty of the hope to come. One more baptism now of David who will be our symbol of a growing, hope-filled, worshipping and witnessing church that will endure with strength, that will be filled with glory, and is bound in its journey to end in the presence of God. Amen.